0: Welcome to the newest episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. I'm your host, Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I speak with Matthew Ichihashi Potts about his new book, Forgiveness, An Alternative Account. During the conversation, we consider the biblical teaching about forgiveness in the face of lingering grievance and ongoing harm. When it comes to forgiveness, what are we being asked to do, and what are we not being asked to do? If you've ever wrestled with forgiveness, we hope that you find this conversation to be generative and helpful. And as always, thank you for tuning in. A couple of months ago, I was in Washington, D.C., I had a few hours open one afternoon, and so I decided to visit the Holocaust Museum. It was, as expected, overwhelming and devastating. It was also quite crowded, and thus more difficult to move through the museum at a contemplative pace. But I finally found my way to the hexagonal Hall of Remembrance at the end, which was comparatively, and surprisingly, empty. As I sat there, reflecting and trying to pray, I noticed various passages of the Hebrew scriptures inscribed above the hall. My attention was particularly captured by one, a question that God asks Cain in Genesis chapter 4. What have you done? Hark, thy brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Genesis 4.10 The use of scripture in the Hall of Remembrance was a reminder to all that God does not remain silent in the face of horrendous evil. God speaks, not just to console but also to interrogate. It struck me as I sat there in the Holocaust Museum, we have questions for God, but God also has questions for us. We find ourselves in facing the questions in asking and answering and in the silences in between. In my own silence, more questions emerged. How could such atrocities have been allowed? And could they ever be redressed? Is it not deeply offensive to suggest that humans capable of such things could ever even be forgiven? Surely this is something only God could do. These thoughts filled my mind as I left the museum because at the time I was also reading a book about forgiveness by our podcast guest, Matthew Ichihashi Potts. In his book, he treats forgiveness as a form of grief. It forbids us to retaliate, giving evil for evil. But forgiveness, he argues, can coexist with confusion, with resentment, with anger, with remembering. It calls us to move forward, acting in the knowledge and reality of God's love, rather than in the knowledge and confidence of our own goodness. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Matthew Ichihashi Potts. So I'm joined now by a distinguished guest, Matthew ichihashi Potts. He's the plumber professor of Christian morals at Harvard Divinity School. He's also the Pussy minister in the Memorial Church at Harvard University, and he's the author of a new book from Yale University Press entitled Forgiveness, an Alternative Account, which is the focus of our conversation today. Matt, thanks for joining us on the In All Things podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Justin. I'm really uh, pleased and excited and honored to be here. I wonder if by way of
0: introduction, you could just tell us a little bit of your story and why it was important for you to wrestle uh, with the topic of forgiveness. So just give us a sense of where you're coming from, and then also your hopes for how the book is going to be read.
1: Yeah, thanks. That's a good question. Um, my story, boy, that could, that's I could be any number <laughs> short, of answers. A short version <laughs> of the story, as, as it story. relates to wrestling <laughs> with the to topic, story, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I, I just, just personally and devotionally, I've, I've just always found um, acts of forgiveness be super moving, and and I think that roots sort of in just childhood faith, my relationship to to Christianity. I, yeah, I mean, one of my earliest memories of like I don't know a religious experience, but like a feeling deep emotion and having like this feeling of strong connection to to the or to the divine is one that also like kind of refracts through an engagement with culture. I mean, one of the things about the book is that you know I read fiction in addition to theology and scripture mm-hmm. and so forth. But I remember, I must have been, I I, I must have been like six or eight or something, but this is, I was born in the late 70s, and this is when the the miniseries Jesus of Nazareth was showing on like network television, and I remember like watching it with my family, it must have been Holy Week, because that's like the time when they show this kind of thing on on network television back then, and I, I remember like um like lying on the, the carpet in my in my family room and, and the crucifixion's happening and then you know Jesus looks down from the cross and says, Father, forgive them if they mm. don't know what they're doing. And I remember I, I like lost it. I had to run upstairs and like just wow. cry in my room. Like I just had this really like visceral, somatic experience to this act mm. of unconditional, unmerited forgive, like this offer of grace, this grace, just yeah. kind of gift of forgiveness. Like from the cross to the people who were doing it to him. It, it just meant a lot to me, and and so I've always found forgiveness moving. Um, and then when I started to see acts in public life which l- resembled that, or or like looked like that, this sort of like willingness to for, forego retaliation, that kind of thing, I've always been moved by that in the civil rights movement and, and and so forth. But when I first started teaching at Harvard, one of the first classes I taught was a class on uh, forgiveness and reconciliation. Mm. And what happens? I had a student in that class who came in and and talked to me. This is a student who was a second career in second like doing ministry as a second career. She she had a first career as a social worker, clinical social worker, and she still had clients. And she came to me. Uh, she was in this class and she was trying to get ordained. And she she came to me after class one day and said, "Listen, I got a question for you because this class is about forgiveness." And she said, "You know, I, I have a client of mine who is a Christian pastor, recently divorced from her husband who is also a Christian pastor. They were married for thirty years, and for all of those thirty years, she suffered abuse." from him. Mm. And she finally got free of him. Right. And, and she has this deep, deep religious shame because she can't forgive him. Mm. Her community wants her to forgive him. Her children wanted to forgive him. He wants her to forgive him. And she said, you know, this, my client doesn't have any ill will towards him in the sense of like wishing him harm. She just doesn't trust him. She doesn't she doesn't want to be in a relationship with him. She sure. can't get close to him, but she internalizes that as this intense shame because she thinks she's a bad Christian because she can't do that. And the student said to me, "Like, what is that? Like, what what do I do with this?" She said, "I kind of know what to say to her as a as a clinical social worker, but right. in a couple of years, I'm going to be a pastor. What do I say to that person mm-hmm. then?" And that was a i i i had I had to think about that. I had to think like, boy, forgiveness. Forgiveness lands on the on victims sometimes really hard, mm. or at least the way we understand what forgiveness is lands on victims or can land on victims really hard. It can transfer the kind of responsibility for repairing harm from the wrongdoer to the victim who who is hurt and and it can become shame because if you don't feel like you can do that right so that got me thinking, and then also like at that time, I just started serving a church i I worked part time as a pastor while while working. For my first ten years, uh, my first eight years on the faculty, I worked part time as a pastor, uh, and then I just also started seeing this in my own life as a pastor, like people struggling with forgiveness on these terms. Like something about the way that forgiveness is understood or has been practiced, at least in recent Christian life, I think it does have this tendency to bear out as as as, as harm for people who are already harmed. And I was wondering, like, we have this this commandment from Jesus, we have these clear commands from Jesus although the instructions are not always clear, forgiveness is clearly a, a, a priority. So I wanted to think about like, how can I think this? How can I rethink this in a way which is both pastorally responsive to the experience of victims, while also faithful to the witness of scripture and the tradition?
0: Yeah, that's really a helpful example. Um, and it it connects to the way you open your book, which you open with this very powerful scene that came after the horrific murder of the nine members of Emanuel A.M.E. Church in Charleston by Dylan Roof, and how the surviving family members were speaking to him in his arraignment. They were expressing anger and grief, and several of the bereaved also, as you said, publicly forgave the murderer. And it seemed like this impossible moment. Um, you know, people like Ta-Nehisi Coates wondered, "Is that is that even real?" Others just marvel at it. You know, this is Christianity at its best, and this kind of conundrum that you mentioned, which, as you say, it's at the heart of Christian faith. And there's something right about us marveling at forgiveness when we experience it. It's also right for us to ask, well, what do we really mean by this? And what yeah. do we really expect? And what does yeah. um, scripture expect of us uh, when yeah. it comes to the commands to forgive? And so can you tease that out a bit, You know, the yeah. doubleness that we feel in terms of marveling at forgiveness, but also sort of questioning it um, at the same yeah. time?
1: Yeah, that's a really useful example for me, not the Charleston shooting example. Because of who forgave and who didn't forgive, and also the terms under which the people who offered forgiveness, the terms under which they offered it, like how they, just reading the quotations and reading public statements from these folks, just thinking about what they meant when they meant forgiveness was really illuminating to me. Mm-hmm. Because you're right, like the, there was a national narrative that emerged from right. this event, which was like, oh, the Charleston families forgave. First of all, that wasn't entirely true. A lot of the families didn't. And in fact, so a lot of families really came wrong. out afterwards That's and were right. like, no, I do not forgive, and I will not forgive, right? That's right. So one thing to pay attention to is why is why were we so anxious to hear the forgiving story? The the national media narrative, which was, oh, they forgave when a lot of them didn't, right? In fact, I think more didn't than did, mm-hmm. right? And then if you listen to the statements of the people who did forgive, either at the arraignment or in post-arraignment interviews, they said things like, I am angry and I will always be angry, but I forgive you. Mm-hmm. Or, "Dylan Roof has nothing to do with me and will never have anything to do with me. The state will do what it needs to do with him. He is not part of my life anymore. We need to move on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. But I forgive him because I'm supposed to forgive him. And, and this is the other thing that's interesting. The national media narrative didn't say oh, they're still angry. Yeah. Oh, they, they they are not asking for reconciliation with this person who is unrepentant and allergic to any sort of sense of reparation or anything, right? And it made me think like, well, you know, when when we say forgiveness colloquially, I think what we often mean when we say forgiveness is, is two things, right? I will give up my anger. I'm no longer angry at you. Mm-hmm. Like when I say I forgive you, what the other person sometimes hears is, I'm not angry anymore. But that's, what that, that's not what these folks said. They said the opposite. I am still angry and I forgive you, right?
0: There, there's almost two senses of moving on, right? So in the one right. sense, part of the reason why we buy into the we want to buy into that forgiveness narrative or we want to, we're so quick to embrace it is we want to move on, right? You right. know, uh, and may, maybe not deal with some of the the difficulties yeah. and the grief and actually think about what repentance would require, things like that. Yeah. But then there's also a moving on for the victims that is is qualitatively distinct from that. That for, you know, and so there's multiple competing accounts of forgiveness, I think within that, exactly, which is why it's such a fascinating uh, case study. Well, the other thing was
1: just like this idea, this, this other survivor who said, I want nothing to do with Dylan Roof and I never will. He's not part of our lives anymore. Like another thing that often I think we hear people say when they say, I forgive you is we hear them say, oh, now we can restore relationship. Now we can be reconciled. Yeah, And I think that, I think that's, I think both these things should be separable from forgiveness because I get worried about moralizing anger, like saying that you know like telling victims you should not be angry anymore yeah. right cuz cuz especially in the wake of trauma like you can't promise to never be angry again right like like even if you feel not if, if you've done a lot of therapy after trauma or something and you don't feel angry for 10 years you might wake up morning one morning and feel intense rage that's the nature of mm. trauma and i don't want to tell a person who thinks that they're forgiving if they wake up one morning angry that their forgiveness has somehow failed like as a pastor i just know that's not that's not a, the appropriate pastoral response to just the wake of a person living in the wake of harm. I think what's important is not whether you feel something inside, but what you do with your feeling. Yeah. Like that's what Christian ethics should be about, like actions, right. like what we do with our feelings, right? So anger, you know, one of the people I quote is this this early modern Anglican uh, bishop and moralist named Joseph Butler. And he has these sermons on forgiveness where he talks a lot about resentment. And he says, resentment's natural. Like it's our it's our natural response. God gave us anger. So we know when we're being harmed. Mm-hmm. And so we can fight for justice. What he says is like, you got to be just got to pay attention to how you fight for justice, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like the fight for justice is, is where we figure out how to do that morally. The feeling is just what you have in your body to let you know that harm is happening. And some of the, some of the, you know, the families of Charleston victims who even families that offered forgiveness in post in, in interviews after this event said like, you know, we're still angry. Nobody's talking about our anger. Like, why does this country not want to acknowledge the anger that yeah. our community, that the Black community in America feels, right? Like, they want to talk about forgiveness as this this is all over. This is not over. This is not okay. over for us, and we still need redress. The fact that we forgave doesn't mean that we don't need redress. Yeah, and so I think that example asked me helped me ask some questions, like, why does forgiveness take the form it takes? Why, you know, in my kind of critical posture— like, yeah. oh, if forgiveness takes the form of us not wanting anger and urging reconciliation, you know, being cynical, like, that sounds like exactly what power would want. Sounds like exactly what like, power and abuser would want to be like, oh, if you, you have a commandment to forgive me, and by the way, when you forgive me, you can't be angry anymore, and we have to reconcile, right? Yeah. But if instead, you look at these Charleston families who are like, I do forgive you. I am still angry. I'm not ready to reconcile. We have more work to do then that means forgiveness demands some work, right? Forgiveness is not like the end of a process where like, oh, there was a harm and now the harm's all over. Rather, forgiveness is a promise from a victim to an abuser that like, I am not going to react to my anger in a particular way, but we still have work to do, right? It's at the beginning of a process which may or may not end in reconciliation if that reconciliation is warranted. And to me, that becomes like, okay, this that becomes like a form of forgiveness that, you know, I might be able to talk to this in my original example, as a pastor, talk to this person who feels shame because she can't forgive. I'm able to say, like, you don't wish harm to your ex-husband. You're not trying to like torture him the way he tortured you. You just don't trust him, and you don't have any reason to trust him. So why should you trust him? Like he doesn't he hasn't earned his way back into your life. You know what? Not wanting vengeance, deciding committing as a moral, like as a moral decision not to act out on your anger, not to to feel vengeful feelings, but not to react with vengeance to me, that's a morally significant posture and response and decision, and is actually the kind of the moral posture and response that Jesus does describe in in so much of the New Testament writings, right? Jesus doesn't tell you how to feel about things, right? Jesus says, here's what you do when you are harmed. Mm. He doesn't tell you how you feel inside when you're harmed, right? And so, like, this is where I wanted to start like teasing this out and where I wanted to start digging and where I saw an opportunity to think like, we can take these commandments to forgive seriously in a way which is entirely congruent with the rest of the scriptural and theological witness that we have without maybe kind of giving over to the, the problematic or harmful forms of forgiveness that do often land really heavily upon victims.
0: Yeah, and a big part of this is this famous phrase, forgive and forget, and then yeah. the forgetting it often is an excusing right of, yeah. of the harm that has been done or even the harm that is continuing to be done. Right. And some of the most, I think, poignant parts of your book are these chapters on memory and yeah. and what it means to remember things that, may, that in some sense may never be able to forget or maybe never should yeah. forget. And it strikes me because it, I think I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, I was in Washington, DC and I spent an afternoon at the Holocaust Museum, which of course was overwhelming and devastating. And uh, I was reading your book at the time And I found myself particularly drawn to a quote at the exhibit, which was the opening statement from the Nuremberg trials. This is from General Telford Taylor. And he said, the mere punishment of the defendants, or even if thousands of others equally guilty can never redress the terrible injuries which the Nazis visited on these unfortunate peoples. For them, it is far more important that these incredible events be established by clear and public proof so that no one can ever doubt that they were fact and not fable. And I was drawn to this because it reminded me of your chapter where you talk about the relationship of forgiveness to retaliation, the forgiveness to remembering. And I wonder if you could say more about these themes, retaliation and remembering, and especially how do we get out of this binary between retaliate and remember or forgive and forget, that those are the two sort of options on the table.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, I really want to get out of that binary. Right? Yeah. I think, right. And I think one of the things that that quote and some of the philosophers and theologians I read in the book, I think they're that quote, like, I think it reveals that retaliation, retaliatory punishment often serves the purpose of forgetting, whereas forgiveness in the proper sense should serve this, the purpose of remembering. Mm-hmm. Right. So one of the philosophers I look at is a, as a Jewish philosopher, a French Jewish philosopher named Vladimir Jankelevich um, and he writes a lot about about forgiveness. He has a book called Forgiveness. But one of the things that he writes that's really wise and correct is that, you know, he says that that the only condition that forgiveness has is sin. Some people say you, know, you have to have repentance to forgive. Some, like those are all like conditions people argue about. But he's like the only thing that's truly and absolutely necessary for there to be forgiveness is a wrongdoing. Because I don't forgive a virtue. Like if you would do something really kind to me, I don't turn to you and say like, oh, I forgive you for that wonderful thing you did, right? Forgiveness presumes a wrongdoing. And so what Jankelevich says is like, every time you say to someone, I forgive you, it is an act of memory because you are reminding that person, reminding the world that there is a harm that stands, that's not erased, right? Because if I, if I, if by forgiving you, the harm goes away, then forgiveness is irrational because the, the harm doesn't exist anymore. Then there's nothing to forgive, right? And so it boils down to him saying that, which is like at its root, forgiveness is a form of memory it is saying to folks, you harmed me. Because implied in every statement, I forgive you, is the statement, you harmed me. And it, and and any form of forgiveness, which tries to end the harm or say the harm is no longer there anymore. So he says, like, when you say forgive and forget, forgetting, that's not forgiveness, because then the harm goes away. <laughs> the harm is still there. That's the only forgive. The harm's still there, right? Or if he says things like, you know, if it understanding like he's like oh, you know i understand if i was in that person's position i might have done the same thing so i'm going to forgive that person he says that's not real forgiveness either because if if they that then they actually just did something that was totally understandable it was not a wrong right then you're not forgiving an actual wrong you're forgiving a reasonable thing that that's what that person did he said the only thing is is just wrongdoing and that's all that forgiveness depends upon and he you know he sees forgiveness as a form of love and in the same that love doesn't have a reason you just love I and mean, you think the way that god loves us. You know, God loves us because God loves us, right? Not because we're good or we're virtuous or handsome or, or you know, smart. God just loves us for no reason. And that is that is the reason, just the love itself. He says forgiveness works the same way. And so on that sense, forgive and forget doesn't work. Forgiveness is a form of memory. In other writings, Jan- Jankelevich gets really worried because, in particular, at, at one of the times that he was writing one of his essays, in Europe, there were some European legislatures were were thinking about putting a statute of limitations upon punishments for war criminals from World War II, and he wrote this very long essay saying, saying we cannot do this because if we say that there is a time after which punishment is no longer necessary, or even when we say, in an echo of the quote you just read from the from the Holocaust Museum, even if we say after the punishment has been given, then the offense is finished. Right, as if as if offense or great or grave sin or trauma is like this equation, where like okay, something's been taken away. As long as you give something back, like punishment, then everything's over. He's like, that's just forgetting. If you Mm -hmm. if you think the offense is over when it's been paid back by retaliation or by punishment, and then the event is ended, he's like, that's not that's it hasn't ended. It's still these people are still dead. These children are still dead. The victims survivors are still in mourning. There's a way in which thinking that punishment is the thing that will end our moral debts and obligations or conclude our moral, you know, solve our moral equations. That's a way of making it go away so we can move on and, you know, scare quotes. What he wants to say is like, we have to be courageous enough to keep remembering. We may decide to punish or not to punish for all kinds of reasons, but we should not think that after we punish or don't punish that the offense has ended because for survivors, it's still alive. And what's important is remembering. So yeah, I think getting out of that binary is exactly what's at stake and letting go of forgetting and holding on to remembering is or should be what forgiveness is about.
0: Yeah. As you're talking, I'm sort of thinking of, um, I mean, even the fact that there is a Holocaust museum and that idea of never again, uh, so that that memory would never, would never go away. Uh, and then c- put that side by side with some contemporary expressions of, you know, for example, the way that we remember September 11th, never mm. forget, you know, that mm-hmm. sense. And, and it does seem like there is, um, and, and this is part of, I think what you're teasing out is there's a way of never forgetting. Um, I don't know, there, there's a virtuous way of never forgetting. And then there's also a, a more destructive way of never forgetting, um, yeah. Yeah. that, can you tease that out a bit? You know, as as, as we yep. remember, you know, it seems like there are ways that are more toxic ways right. of remembering, and there are also ways that are not not as yep. not as toxic. Yeah,
1: uh, yeah, I think that's right. I think if I think if never forgetting becomes sort of the justification for lingering actions of like vengeance. For right aggression and, you know, or aggression, retaliation. And, retaliation yeah. Then that, to me, I would say that's a, a, a not a Christian posture, right? I mean, whether or not it's a public posture that we take as a nation, is maybe a different question. But for me, as a Christian, like I would say, like that's not what I think sure. Christians ought to do, and that's not the posture I think Christians ought to take. But never forgetting, in the sense that um the the world that we build together must be one that takes seriously, kind of the wounds that we bear, mm. right. So, like, if we are going to move forward together as a community, as a nation, as people, or move towards reconciliation, which may may not yet be earned or whatever, but if we are going to move forward, we can't pretend that stuff didn't happen, right? We can't pretend that people aren't still hurting. Um, Another, you know, I look at lots of different types of folks. I I look at an amazing Mennonite peacemaker and scholar named John Paul Lederach in the book a little bit. And he's he's negotiated peace deals in, in areas of active conflict and in post-conflict situations all over the world. You know, one of the things he says is like just being with people, like you have to be super patient in these situations because people have deep, deep harm and yeah. deep, deep pain. And a lot of the work is just acknowledging people's deep, deep pain and assuring them that you're not trying to through the process of peacemaking you're not trying to pretend that that pain didn't happen or make it go away or stifle their stories on the contrary what you're trying to do is convince them that like we understand that what has been lost cannot be regained but life goes on how do we live in the wake of this loss right yeah. and that's that's you know one of the analogies i use in the book is that i i want to think about forgiveness as like a form of mourning and forgiveness as a good a moral good in the same way that mourning is a good not because mourning is like fun or great or anybody wants to do it it's just necessary like when you lose someone you love you need to to move on not move on and forgetting them you need to figure out how to live in their absence right and i think what forgiveness does at its best or in the way that jesus i think is teaching us is forgiveness says is like okay this harm has been done and can't be undone but we need to keep living and we need to try to live with love so what would living with love look like in the wake of this thing that we Mm -hmm. cannot undo at least in this life right that we cannot undo and how do we do that responsibly, morally, without trying to get it back, right? I think a lot of, the, a lot of the, the kind of retaliatory frameworks or reciprocal justice frameworks, like have this kind of magical sort of sense in which, you know, like that something will be regained if I retaliate, something that I've lost will be like, I will get something like what I really want is to retaliate and that will f- resolve something, but it doesn't actually close the process in, in almost any case.
0: Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I think this theme of remembrance and forgetting is so valuable for us as Christians as we reflect on what discipleship requires. Because yeah. it strikes me that there are always things. You know, I always think with my students, what are the things that we ri- that we rightly say never forget, and what are the things mm. we're really trying to forget? You know, as a yeah. nation. Yeah, right. And and why? And let's interrogate that that yeah. the desire to forget certain things and remember certain yeah. other things. Yeah. And it, it it helps, I think, to approach forgiveness from this lens of what are we trying to remember what are we trying to forget yeah. um and and what actions uh does, does that entail on us the other yeah. thing i really like about what you said is this idea of starting with mourning rather than magic or miracle for, yeah. for forgiveness because we just naturally do have compassion don't we towards those who mourn and it yeah. evokes a sense of empathy and understanding for yeah. those who are going through that struggle to forgive yeah. and to say on top of my struggle also here's one more thing for you to carry You yeah. must also not mad. You must also not have resentment. You must also trust and restore completely the relationships you yeah. had before. I yeah. think it's just really helpful. Let me ask you yeah. a different question. Sure. One of the unique things about this book is you're in dialogue, not just with theologians and moral philosophers, but you offer these really luminous readings of four contemporary writings, uh, Ishiguro, Marilyn Robinson, Erdrich, and Toni Morrison. And I love the way you describe this as writing theology in the margins of literary texts. It's a lovely phrase. Can you say more about that method and why it was important for you to make your argument in dialogue with literature uh, rather than just saying, hey, here's the moral philosophy. Here's the theology. Here's the reflection of biblical texts.
1: I, for, I have to acknowledge I stole that line from one of my teachers, a guy named okay. Mark Jordan, who's a professor at Harvard. He, he he talked about writing theology in the margins of other texts, right? And if you think about that, that's all theology has ever been. I mean, we have an original scriptural witness, and then re- theology is writing in the margins of those texts, trying to t- figure out what it means for us, trying to—you know, if you think about—I don't know if you do this in your in your books, probably a lot of readers do, but, you know, when you're reading something that you're really trying to learn and learn from, or even in your Bible or whatever, like you write stuff in the margins to say, like, You you can go back to those marginal things like, oh, this is what this meant to me back then. Here's what it means now. There's a certain idea of texts as so rich they can speak to different moments in our lives. And so I think that's kind of what theology does. Theology is this practice whereby we have these witnesses which are guiding for us, but their meaning is is not exhausted, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, we come to them and find meaning in them by living our lives and bringing them into our lives. And we write what they mean for us and what they might mean for others. And that's what theology becomes. Right. So that, I mean, that's, so that's just like a general posture of how I think about what theology is or ought to be doing. I I turned to literary texts for a couple of reasons. I think, I mean, just speaking really frankly and personally, it's the kind of reading I like to do most. I mean, I I practice, you know, my scholarly profession as a theologian and, and occasionally I'll pick up a really interesting book of theology that I'm excited to read and read it. But you know (laughs) what, what's on my bedside table is not usually a sack of philosophy or theology. It's, Hmm. it's fiction. And I, And, and I care about, I care about that form of writing. I care about storytelling and I just enjoy it. So that's, that's one reason. And, and so I love these books and I wanted to write about these books and, and I thought they, each of them says something different, but really important and troubling and complicated and, and, um, significant about, about forgiveness. So I wanted to write about these books, just kind of speaking frankly and practically, I sort of walked backwards in the methodology, right? I wanted to read these books and so I had to figure out why I was going (laughs) to write about these books. I mean the the other the other thing is that I think that especially the way that I want to talk about what forgiveness is, you know, one of the arguments I sort of develop in the book is that for me as a Christian, one of the things I think is beautiful and true about Christianity is it acknowledges that humans never have it right, that we don't have the right answers, we don't have the right ideas, we don't do the right things, and that this relationship of forgiveness with each other and with God is just part of what it means to be human, and literary writing. Is super comfortable with that depiction of human experience, right? Of complexity and failure and incompletion and incoherence, right? The most interesting characters in a piece of literary fiction are the ones who are confused and unsure, and who do some things well and some things poorly, and right. And they then those characters become whole and interesting to us. And I don't mean this as a backhanded compliment, but like theology, really good theology is clear. Mm. And describes things very coherently and tells you what things are and what things aren't and how things right should be. There was something about the way I wanted to think about forgiveness as forgiveness being sort of the, the posture we must take because things are messy, which is described and answered and embodied really well in literary writing. In which theological writing, even if it tries to describe that messiness, its job is to describe that messiness really clearly. Right. And so like I use a lot of philosophy and theology in my in my in my book, and my book is a book of theology, right? And so I'm not Mm -hmm. I didn't write a novel to try to explain all this. But it seemed really important and even if not important, appropriate to turn to some depictions of forgiveness which are messy and don't propose all the right answers, just try to propose the complexity of what it means to be human and live in moral situations where there are no perfect acts or answers.
0: I really appreciated the interaction with Marilyn Robinson, who I also yeah. love and have written about. And I was really struck by your reading of, of Gilead in the way that it painted John Ames as a more tragic character than I had initially, you know, sort of thought. Yeah. And uh, you especially kind of talk about his, the book Gilead as an exercise in repentance for his failures to rightly remember and and rightly act. And uh, you use this to kind of talk a little bit about the way we often try to re-narrate the world to portray ourselves in the best possible light mm. and discuss Bonhoeffer's critique of ethics, which is that we use ethical deliberation to justify ourselves in our response to evil to get free of its stain, so to speak. Yeah. And you write, you say, what would it mean to act in the knowledge and reality of God's love rather than in the knowledge and confidence of our own goodness? Can you say more about that and repentance and confession yeah. and its relationship to forgiveness?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the, the I love Gilead too. And um and I love John Ames, right? And I came to this reading of Gilead after like a third or fourth reading of it. And, and I sort of had to like think about like, boy, I love this guy. I think he's like, this is really wonderful pastor and and person and then also think about like and and like everybody else he didn't do everything right right (laughs) Right? and i do see the book as him coming to realization of that but also trusting in in the way that john ames has just trusting in the grace of god and the love of god to 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 receive him with welcome like any prodigal son right the the bonhoeffer bonhoeffer's been a, a really important theologian for me since my doctoral work and i think that that You know, it's in some ways it's like an obvious line for those of us who come from the Protestant tradition, right? Like this idea that we aren't saved by our own good works; we're saved by God's grace. That God loves us. That's why we're saved, and that we we have a confidence in is our confidence in God's love for us, not our confidence in in our own actions. I mean, this is sort of Martin Luther, the freedom of the Christian, right? This is Bonhoeffer, I think, restating this. But what was really important for me, especially around these questions, especially as as I'm thinking about forgiveness, not as Anger abatement, or not as forced reconciliation, but forgiveness as foregoing retaliation, right? If that's what I'm thinking about forgiveness, then Bonhoeffer becomes this really interesting character for me because, you know, Bonhoeffer was was um, he wrote in the early 30s strong defenses of Christian pacifism, right? He has discipleship his book Discipleship, which is a reflection of the Sermon on the Mount. Just takes Jesus's commandments from the Sermon on the Mount at face value and says like these are the commandments. This is the word of God. Love your enemy, blesses it curse you, turn the other cheek right he just says like this is this is this is what it means to be Christian and he takes so seriously and so i I wanted to reckon, wrestle with him and reckon with reckon with him, but we also know is that at the time he was writing his ethics, which remained unfinished because he was murdered by the Nazis at the time he was writing the ethics, he was in prison for for participation in an assassination attempt against Hitler, right, right? right. and a lot of folks say things like what oh, did 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 Bonhoeffer loses nerve, right? Did Bonhoeffer say like, "Oh, actually, it's the, the Sermon on the Mount's all well and good until things get really hairy, and then you can abandon it and do other things"? And I don't think that's what was going on. I mean, he never spoke wrote about this directly, but what I see going on in the Ethics is him putting his faith in God's love, right? Or him saying he says in the Ethics, you know, the Word of God always stands, the command to love your enemy always stands, but we also have this command to protect the weak and to save those who are vulnerable, right? And so. What I see Bonhoeffer doing in that situation is saying, "I have I have two things I must do, and I can't do both together. I cannot both love my enemy and protect the vulnerable. And so I'm I must act. This is Luther again. Like here I stand. I can do no other. Like that. I I am obligated to act. And if I act and if I act and and participate in this assassination attempt and say that is the virtuous action because I did it to save others." that's placing confidence in my own goodness. That's saying, oh, this act has become good and that's what saves me. Instead of saying, oh, I believe in a merciful God and I will sometimes be called upon to do things that I know are sinful because I can do no otherwise. Because I cannot save myself. I cannot make myself pure and holy. All I have is the world before me and its tragic demands. And so when I take this action, I don't celebrate it as this virtuous heroic thing that I had the courage to do as a virtuous person. I repent it. I say, like, this is what I had to do, and I kneel before God and say, I'm sorry, God, I could do no other thing, but also kneel in gratitude because we know that our God is a God of mercy and a God of love and forgiveness and that this necessary thing, which is not a virtue, is still a forgivable thing and something that that will not stand between us and God's love for us. And so this is what I see happening in a lot of Christian ethics. And I think that Bonhoeffer saw happening in a lot of Christian ethics. You know, he says that ethics is the determination of good and evil, what's good and what's evil. And he's like, once you start talking about what action, human actions are good, you've already lost the Christian game. You think that human actions are good in and of themselves, that they stand in and of themselves, rather than realizing that we only stand because we are beloved by God. Like our existence depends upon the fact that we're loved by God. And when we act in the world, that is the thing we ought to have confidence in.
0: Yeah. There's something really helpful about that. You know, I'm teaching a course on Christian ethics this semester as well. Yeah. And we sort of started with, okay, here, let's just kind of talk about emotionally healthy reactions to controversial issues. Cause we talk about yeah. all the controversial things. And, and one of the things is we talk about, a bit about Bonhoeffer and and how often our ethical deliberation really is an exercise in self-justification or self-congratulation, yeah. which yeah. shows that what we're really trying is to kind of get to the place where we're standing on in the right on the right side with exactly. the right team, and right. Um, and that actually keeps us from. Right ethical action because yeah. we're so consumed with with ourselves. So yeah. I thought it was a really helpful. I, I, again, I, for those who are listening, it's it's worth reading the book just to to read the um, account of Gilead uh, and the other the other novels as well. But that one in particular was was challenging and helpful to me.
1: I, I think the other thing I'd say about that is just also I think it really changes the way we think about things like violence or like punishment or something like that. I hope I'm not naive, right? I think that. The, the world is a dangerous place, and I think we have this command from Jesus to love our enemies, and it's one that I try to live into fully. But I'm also grateful, grateful for those soldiers in World War II who liberated the camps, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't think there's any way to be anything other than that. I think there is something about when we, when we deliberate about when and how to use violence. There's a difference between entering a deliberation saying, what is the right and justified thing that we can do, versus... What is the tragic and necessary thing that we must do? Right. Mm-hmm. And if we if we turned away from like violent action as a potentially heroic and virtuous thing, and instead thought of it as always a tragic and necessary and, and only sometimes necessary thing, it would change the way we deliberated. It would also change the way we in like post-conflict situations, how we treated each other. Mm.
0: So on the whole, your book is interrogating what um, you note is an overly optimistic, perhaps perspective of forgiveness that can turn the ethic of forgiveness into a tool in the hands of the powerful. You have to forgive me. And then in your final chapter, you also express some concerns about particular accounts of Christian eschatology, our vision of last things, heaven, new creation, all will be well, that sort of thing. Um, What's your understanding of Christian hope? and what the theology of resurrection means for our theology of forgiveness. When it comes to the end, what yeah. may we
1: hope? I think we can hope and, uh, you know, hope and faith go very close together. I mean, I, my hope and my faith is that it is in God's love for us, that I'll be beloved, right? That I am beloved and that I will remain beloved of God. I think where I get concerned is, is when Christian visions of, of the eschaton, seem too deeply rooted in a, in like happiness. I mean one of the, the the things I engage in that last chapter is like an idea of like the end times as a time of felicity, right? So this was a person who was, who was writing about the necessi- the necessity of forgetting, right? We need to, we need to forget because how can we really be happy if we remember all the awful things that happened to us? And I I'm not sure that I'm not sure that it's right to project human affective responses to the world into eternity right that's not to say that i I have no real strong or or robust imagination of what eternity is but i think it it's i worry about projecting my human responses to the world as it is into the future Mm -hmm. rather than doing what i think scripture tells us to do which is confidence in god's love as the future right Mm -hmm. and because because what i know about love in this life is that love is sometimes happy sometimes it's the happiest thing i've got and other times it's painful. And other times it's stressful and other times it's angry and other times it's all these other things right and that says more about what it means to be a human who is engaging with this divine and holy power of love and trying to struggle my way through it as a flawed and and anxious and and incomplete creature and maybe less about the nature of what love is or will be like when it is released from some of these feathers and foibles and so i get worried about saying oh what we're striving for is happiness. And what I can imagine with respect to the eschaton must be answerable to my sense of what it means to be happy, Mm -hmm. which seems to me so caught up in just kind of human affect. And what I I have to do is just be confident that that God is love and that God will continue to love me. And then I also have to get, this is the hard part, is also have to have confidence that God loves my enemy, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? And and if I cannot imagine an eschaton where I can be happy because God loves both me and my enemy, then that has less to do with God's love and more to do with my sense of what makes me happy. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I do want to take the promises of, of scripture seriously, that, that we will be at peace and, and that we will, that we will be with God and that there will not be the kinds of mourning and grief and pain that, that we in this world do need to experience. But I also don't want that to keep me. What I worry is that that promise keeps me from really courageously facing grief and pain and suffering in this life because that's what love feels like in this life, right? And that is the thing to which I'm called and that is the thing that I have the most confidence in as a as a matter of eternity.
0: That's really helpful. I wonder if by way of summary, you talked about focusing on what we are called to do in this life. And so just pastorally, you know, I'm sure there are people listening to this podcast who are wrestling with this question of forgiveness, who have been confronted by uh, the scriptural passages to forgive as Christ yeah. has forgiven us. Uh, so, what would you say uh, when we encounter those biblical injunctions? What are we being asked to do? Yeah. Uh, what are we not being asked to do?
1: I mean, I think I think we're being asked not to not to visit violence with violence. I think when I think retaliatory harm, on my reading or my understanding, I think retaliatory harm is really the thing that when Jesus says forgive, I think he's asking us not to return violence for violence. Which is hard. I mean, I think especially anger is real and vengeful feelings are real. And it's and I think vengeance as an act is tempting. I don't want to be naive about about how trauma does affect us and what it does stir in us. And that's what I think like on the ground forgiveness means. Right. And, and because I think it means that I think I want us to be self-forgiving as people. Right. As either as, as Christians and individual Christian Christians or as Christians who counsel other Christians or in relationship with other Christians. I want us to be okay with anger. And, and instead of asking, why am I angry? Ask what I to do with this anger, right? I mean, that's not to say that anger cannot become itself a pastoral problem. You know, sometimes we can be so consumed with anger, it disrupts our life and, and makes us miserable and makes others around us miserable. And if that's the case, then, then we should address that. But if it's, you know, if it's not acting out in harm towards others, then I'm not sure it's a betrayal of any kind of forgiveness. And I think we should forgive ourselves for when we feel angry. I think we should pay attention to why we feel angry. I think when we when we don't feel like we trust someone and want to reconcile, I think we can forgive ourselves for for not reconciling. You know what? Jesus commands us many times to forgive. But, you know, the descriptive witness also says that God will reconcile all things to God's self. You know, that, that the work of full and final reconciliation is the work of God and Jesus Christ. And we participate in that in our meager way. But just kind of the humility of realizing that we are humans with finite hearts and finite loves, and that we participate in this process, but then also trust God to bring us along and bring our enemies along into it through the the infinite love made flesh in Jesus. Like I, it's okay to leave God's task to God and not take all of it for ourselves, mm-hmm. especially when we're doing as much as our human hearts can do by turning away from vengeance and turning away from vengeful acts. So I think really just I hope that the book, you know, I hope that. I, I don't imagine that everyone who reads the book will agree with everything in it because I, you know, I say some, I take some, sometimes some kind of, um, I don't know if provocative is the right word, but against the conventional wisdoms positions on some of these things. And that's, it's okay if people disagree with them. What I hope is that people will just really start to think about what other ideas or practices accrue to forgiveness, glom onto it in our world, and how badly do we need them? And, and, and can we let go of some of them in our own lives or in the lives of those we care about?
0: Our guest has been Matthew ichihashi Potts, and the book is Forgiveness, an Alternative Account from Yale University Press. Matt, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Justin. It was great. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andreas Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Ruth Clark, Shannon Vischer, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org, or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others.